This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. This is Raise Your Game. I'm Christine Wong. Joining me on the line today is Su Yan Wong. She is a board director, professional speaker, and internationally recognized thought leader. We'll be covering a wide range of topics today, surrounding everything from jobs of the future to leadership in Asia and even employee survival skills. So thank you so much for joining me today, Su Yan. Thank you, Christine. So glad to be here. All right. So uh, for our listeners, can you just quickly introduce yourself and uh, tell us what you're all about? Certainly. Well, I actually started my life as a as a musician, but along the way, I, I morphed. And uh, today, as you mentioned, I spend my time serving on, an, on a number of different boards. And I also uh, am a professor of leadership for global leadership specifically. And I also have my own company. So uh, I'm not bored. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It sounds like you're a very busy bee indeed. And I'm very happy to have some of your time to talk about all these topics today. Um, so I think where I want to start is the thing that's been on all of our minds for the past year, yeah. the pandemic, right? Mm. Um, you know, I just want to get your thoughts a little bit on um, how you think the pandemic has impacted the speed of how we've been progressing and how we've been changing, especially pertaining to like IR 4.0. Mm-hmm. So the pandemic has been a, a real paradox, you know, and so far as industrial revolution is concerned. So on the one hand, we've really embraced the use of technology like never before. Right. So mm-hmm. education has gone virtual. You know, the law courts are hearing cases remotely. Uh, telemedicine has proven viable. Right. So definitely on the one hand, you could basically say that we're sort of hurdling towards uh, industrial revolution 4.0. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there are some aspects that have really taken us back to pre industrial revolution times. So that sounds a bit counterintuitive, right? So what do I mean by that? Um, so pre-industrial revolution, which by the way, has only been around for about 150 years, mm-hmm. uh, self-employment and remote working were actually the norm. It was only with the onset of the industrial revolution that the structure of work changed. So, you know, farmers and families migrated into cities and towns and we went from work being performed, you know, in workshops or homes to, you know, in factories and offices. So in some ways we've gone forward and in some ways we've gone backwards. So it's a bit of a paradox. Wow. Actually, that's such, that's so interesting. I never thought about it in that way. But when, when you've put it that way, it, it totally makes sense. Most people were, I guess, rather entrepreneurial back in the yeah, day. Yeah, exactly. Yes. That indeed. is so fascinating. So that's kind of like talking about the past and, and, you know, where we can go. And I think, you know, when we say IR 4.0, we think, mm. you know, um, digitalization and, and getting online and, and 5G and all this stuff, right? Yeah. But indeed. let's think about looking at the future. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. What do you think are some jobs of the future that we haven't started hiring for yet? So here's the thing, you know, we're actually reasonably good at predicting, you know, what we may need in the future. We can Mm -hmm. kind of have a lens that looks out, but what we're really bad at is time frame. So let me just give you an example. So back in about 10 years ago, if you looked at some of the um, hot jobs, uh, you would see things like um, iOS developers. So these were like jobs that had huge growth in those days. And this was early days where you see jobs like data scientists and big Mm -hmm. data architects and so forth. But today these are pervasive. And, you know, these were predicted to be, you know, hot jobs, you know, out and in the future. Well, today the future is here, right? Mm -hmm. So when you think about jobs of the future that we've yet to start hiring for, I think they're really about hybrid jobs. Mm. So what I mean by that is certainly, you know, as technology increases, there will be huge technology components. But what actually makes 
people unique is the human dimension. So when you think about jobs of the future, let's think about how we can actually hybridize technology and the human dimension. Those right. are the jobs I think we've really yet to start hiring for. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of talk about um, how we think about building in technology. Absolutely. But I think equally, it will be the ethicist, right? How we think about ethics, for example. How do we think about people who can coach people through the mental health issues, for example? It's mm-hmm. these types of jobs that we'll really need to complement the kind of environment that we're in. Wow. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, there's this whole uh, prediction, right, by uh, experts at the Institute for the Future uh, workshop. This was about in uh, 2017, but the prediction was that 85% of the jobs that will exist in 2030 haven't been invented yet. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah. So here's a really interesting thing. Um, back in 2000 and I, I want to say 2013, mm-hmm. um, there was a list of jobs that was published saying he, these are going to be the top jobs in 2030, right? So mm-hmm. since you mentioned 2030, uh, and they included things like um, vertical farmer, mm. uh, body, body part maker, uh, child designer, um, waste data handler and climate controller. Now, mm. these all sound kind of fancy, but the thing is, here we are 10 years ahead of 2030, and most of these jobs already exist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've got a friend who's a doctor, and he basically says, look, you know, pretty much any body part that you need replacing can be replaced other than the brain. Right. Right? So, so um, yeah, these were the jobs that we predicted would be, you know, would be, would be the top jobs in 2030, but we're here we are uh, mm-hmm. 10 years ahead of time. And, um, you know, vertical farmers, yep, we've got those too, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think um, the pace of change is just accelerating. Absolutely. So it'd be the next group that we need to think about. So, OK, so that's more like, OK, so that's the jobs of the future. Now let's sort of look at the skills of the future, right? Because I mm-hmm. think one of the big things, especially with the pandemic, that um, there's been a lot of, I guess, skills and, and qualities that have been demanded of employees at the moment to, you know, things like um, being adaptable and flexible and being able to, you know, be agile. So, I mean, what do you think are some of the top skills that the, I guess, the incoming generation of employees need for survival in the workplace? Mm. So I would break this into a couple of different components. The first part is, yes, absolutely digital skills. You know, it's a bit like, um, you know, there's some skills that are are just core, right? Mm-hmm. You know how to read, you know how to write, you know how to sort of do your sums. Uh, digital skills are going to be part of that uh, portfolio as well, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of your age, regardless of your profession. So even if you're in something that you don't think of as being digital, let's say you're, you know, let's say you go back to this ex- doctor example, mm-hmm. um, even doctors need to think about how medical technology is changing, right? So digital is going to be an aspect of, um, of skills that I think will touch just about any job. Mm-hmm. Even if you're a musician, if you're musicians today, also think about how you think about technology and incorporating that. The second component, however, I would say is around what I would call human skills. Mm-hmm. So again, a bit of a paradox. Um, you know, as, as digital skills come in place, I think what makes us human um, is things like curiosity, right? It's things like problem solving. And this is where technology still needs the human element. It's mm-hmm. it's also aspects like, and this is probably a third component, resilience, adaptability, which you mentioned. Um, you know, the workplace is changing so dramatically. And on top of that, we're living longer lives. So which means that over the course of our lives, we're going to be cycling through a lot of different um, jobs mm-hmm. and a lot of different um, industries, perhaps industries are going to, you know, rise, they'll grow, they'll plateau, they'll decline all if, if, within our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. So that ability to adapt 
adapt and be resilient is going to be absolutely critical as well. Yeah. So both the tech and the human. And I think that ties back into the fact that, you know, you were saying earlier that the jobs of the future will probably be hybrid in nature, right? It's about applying, you know, uh, human nature to being able to use technology in that way. So I think that that, that matches up really well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Spot on. And also, I mean, I'm also curious to find out, we are sort of in the space of uh, remote or hybrid working. Uh, uh-huh. Like, for example, like now we're doing this interview yes. remotely. There are many companies that are slowly starting to transition into uh, having flexible working arrangements uh, full time, even post pandemic. That's the plan, right? So, I mean, do you think that remote or hybrid working could become the new default form of work? Yes, I do think that uh, we've learned through the pandemic that some forms of work can be conducted remotely and that productivity actually does not decrease. Actually, productivity, if well managed, uh, actually can increase. Um, So I do think that this this will be, um, you know, employees will expect it. In fact, Mm. many, many surveys have actually demonstrated that employees actually would like to spend some portion of their time working remotely. Now, the thing about that is that there is no one size fits all. So it depends on the job, the individual, uh, and it depends on their family circumstances. Some people want to work remotely one day a week, one day a month. Other people want to work remotely four days a week, right? So it's a spectrum. And I think employers are going to have to be a lot more flexible about Mm -hmm. how they engage with their employees. Right. Because there are a lot of companies that, you know, we've been uh, seeing, I believe, I believe Microsoft is one of them, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and Spotify is also one of them where they have now introduced, you know, completely flexible working arrangements. I mean, what do you think will happen to companies that, let's say, feel like, you know what, even when the pandemic's over, we feel like we want to get everyone back in the office full time? I mean, do you think they'll be able to survive when, you know, there is the option for flexible working arrangements at other companies? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think it's going to be important to still bring people together. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, we're, you know, social and human creatures. So there is an element around, you know, how do we bring teams together? How do you build culture and how do you build team spirit? So yes, absolutely. That is an important factor. However, the other side of it is if part of the job can be done remotely. That actually opens up a global talent pool for mm-hmm. companies. And conversely, it opens up global opportunities for employees, right? So I think that means that companies need to, well, they'll have access to a much broader talent pool if they are able to work in some form remotely. So you've got a skill shortage in this particular country or this particular industry. Well, maybe those skills are available someplace else and you can tap on that talent pool elsewhere. Mm-hmm. From the employee perspective, same thing, right? I, mean, I have a particular skill set and maybe my market now is not only local. Previously, I might have had to uproot uh, myself, my family, but now perhaps I can also work in those opportunities that are, you know, 12 time zones away. Absolutely. Actually, I just want to touch a bit on uh, something that you brought up, which is company culture. Uh, there's mm. a sort of discussion at the moment about how do you maintain company culture when no one is t- together, right? Uh, you know, so I mean, t- just uh, give me your thoughts a little bit on, on, on that. Like, do you think it is possible to cultivate, um, you know, a company's culture, even when everyone is uh, working remotely? It's definitely a lot more difficult to maintain company culture when everyone's remote. Mm -hmm. However, I would also say it really depends on the leadership um, that you have in place and the the cultural DNA. So what I mean by that, even before the pandemic, what we were starting to see is 
companies that were entirely virtual in their entire existence. So local startup companies actually are formed this way. So they have their CTO in this in this country, and then the marketing person is someplace else. And, and so these companies, by their DNA, are already virtual, and that is their culture. It's just, of course, a lot more difficult for an established company to develop that develop that type of dynamic culture. But it can be done. So what do you need to do? You need to actually engage a lot more individually, a lot of touch points, because where culture gets built very often is in the informal touch points. Yeah. The problem is when you, everything is, is working remotely, you typically come on remotely when you have a specific event or meeting to attend. It's mm-hmm. less about the informal touch points, right? So you got to build in those opportunities as well. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about leadership after the break and specifically talking about, you know, where Asian leaders stand on the global scale. Uh, I'm speaking to Suyan Wong here on Razor Game on BFM 89.9. Beautiful, festive moments. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. listening to Raise Your Game. I'm Christine Wong and on the line with me today is Su Yen Wong. She is a sought-after keynote speaker. She's a professional moderator, facilitator, board director, uh, thought leader. So many um, fish that are happening in the sea at the moment with, uh, with Su Yen. And she's joining me on the line today to discuss a wide variety of issues. But uh, before the break, we sort of covered thoughts on uh, IR 4.0 and jobs and skills of the future. Uh, and now I really want to talk about a leadership specifically pertaining to um, Asian leaders because I think one of the interesting things that uh, I see in terms of leadership is that there are a lot of, you know, uh, leadership guides and books and, and texts and articles and a lot of them are written from a Western perspective. So I wanted to sort of pick your brains on this. I mean, mm. what do you think uh, is the current general perception of Asian leaders and their leadership ability or, or style on the global scale at the moment? So it really depends on what yardstick we're using to measure leadership. Mm -hmm. As you rightly pointed out, um, you know, I think a lot of the global paradigm of leadership today is largely a a Western one. Mm -hmm. Right. So when we think about measuring against that yardstick, um, you know, clearly you have different cultural values, you have different norms, different expectations. So, you know, obviously, you know, Asian leaders come up, uh, you know, along a different scale than, Mm than Western leaders. However, what I would also say is that, um, you know, the world is shifting, right? The world is tilting uh, towards not just Asia, but emerging markets in general. And what that means is that the ability to lead effectively in Asian and emerging markets is going to become increasingly important. So that means that the palette or the portfolio of skills that a leader brings, whether they be from Asia or from the West, really needs to incorporate the, uh, the reality on the ground in this part of the world. So that's how I see, um, you know, the current state of play Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to Asian leaders. I think also the other sort of tangent I wanted to ask you about is I think there is a sort of um, perception of uh, Asian leaders as being a bit more conservative, being a bit more uh, corporate, I guess. You know, Mm -hmm. we think about, let's say, uh, companies like Google in the US and we see their uh, office with slides and pool tables and whatnot, you know, Uh, Mm -hmm. and and I I do sort of get the feeling sometimes from, uh, you know, reading about uh, uh, leaders that there is this sort of perception that Asia is not quite there. 
there in terms of being as, I guess, free and easy or, you know, mm. focusing more on uh, environment. It, it, it seems to be very corporate in nature in terms of how we are seen. I, I don't know what your thoughts mm. are on that. Well, I think the um, the key here is around building for innovation. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that um, every company is being faced with now is the fast pace of disruption, a bit of what we talked about in the first half. Mm-hmm. So what kind of culture and environment do you need to enable that? And that permeates all sorts of dimensions, including how you make decisions, what you expect of your leaders, your performance management systems, how you pay people, and then yes, including your physical environment. So as, you know, as Asian companies become much more, uh, you know, sort of focused on innovation Mm -hmm. and the future, they will naturally evolve as well. The other part of it really is when you look at demographics, you know, quite frankly, the um, millennials in Asia have a lot more in common with millennials outside of Asia than they perhaps might have mm-hmm. um, with uh, baby boomers in Asia. Mm-hmm. So there is that generational shift taking place as well. And for companies to truly attract uh, and retain the talent that they need to help drive them into the future, companies will have to evolve as well. Mm. Do you think that sort of uh, generational distance is because perhaps we are a lot more globalized now? as well like you know we are able to communicate with people right like across the world and be able to see that we have a lot in common but in terms of the the gap between the generations because obviously baby boomers did not have the resources to Mm. do the same thing i mean what do you think about that yes quite right quite right i mean we're we're now and particularly the pandemic we're all (laughs) global right (laughs) so you know and and in that sense you know everyone is able to reach out to have access to understand you know what's happening elsewhere But more importantly, I think it's really about the exchange of ideas. Mm. Uh, You know, when we when we sit in our little pod, you know, where however you define that pod, you know, whether it's the company pod or whether it's the country pod or the city pod or so on, we see what's in that space. Mm -hmm. And so so that's good. Um, But of course, the more we can bring in diversity of ideas and experiences, um, the better and the stronger, the more resilient our ideas are going to be actually, right? Mm So, uh, and again, there's been a lot of research on this that's proven that the more diversity you have, actually, the more more resilient your business model, the more resilient business and so forth. So, um, so yes, a lot of it really has to do with the fact that we have much more exposure. There are a lot more nodes in that equation than before. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought up the topic of diversity because that's something I want to cover with you as well. Um, so I think, again, you know, from my perspective, uh, when we talk about diversity and, you know, uh, applying it to your company, a lot of the time the text on that tends to, again, be from a Western perspective. It will tend to do with, let's say, having more people of color in your company, having more mm-hmm. people, uh, uh, making sure that your board is more uh, equal in terms of gendered, uh, you know, percentages and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I mean, how do you feel, I guess, Asian or I guess Southeast Asian companies are handling the issue of diversity and how can they further this progress? Yeah, I think as with all matters in Southeast Asia, it's very difficult to sort of broad brush everything because we're such a diverse region. Exactly. In mm-hmm. uh, so, but you know, on the whole, I think it's fair to say that there has been good progress in terms of diversity. If you look at, for example, of course, a lot of Southeast Asia, you have a lot of family businesses. Mm-hmm. And in some of the family businesses, what you see is that the reins are passing to the daughters and not only the sons, right? Mm-hmm. So you can see that progress has been made. However, I think that 
obviously there's a lot more room to grow. Mm. The biggest opportunity uh, is really in changing mindsets and perceptions around gender roles. So specifically, women have made tremendous strides professionally. However, I'm not sure the same can be said for men on the home front and the caring front. Uh, and, and here I, you know, I, I put caring in a very broad bucket, whether mm. it's about children or elderly parents. And as we as societies age, mm-hmm. which is happening across all of Southeast Asia, that's going to be increasingly uh, an element that needs to be addressed um, so as a society and, and as a family. Mm. And uh, as long as, you know, that load at home or that the caring load is not shared, it's actually going to be quite difficult for women to make similar strides on the professional front, right? right. I mean, it's it's just too much for any one person to, to, to be doing everything at 100%. So I would say that, um, you know, the, the biggest opportunity is really in uh, changing, changing uh, attitudes around gender roles yeah. uh, and having much more equity both in the workplace and at home. Mm. Actually, it's so interesting that you brought that up because I think that is a massive issue in terms of, you know, women are now able obviously to uh, have full-time careers and that's excellent. However, like you said, a lot of the time they are sharing that role with also being, I guess, the primary uh, homemaker, right? And That's it's, right. you know, there's a massive issue at the moment with uh, the amount of emotional labor that women have to perform both in their personal and professional lives. Um, and not to say, you know, that uh, there isn't improvement in that regard either. But like you said, it is still an interesting issue, especially when you think about, you know, paternity leave, right? Like how many mm-hmm. companies account for that as well as maternity leave and, and uh, yes. so many other factors that go into that. And sometimes that can have unintended consequences mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, something that on the face of it appears to be for the benefit of one group actually turns out to be to their detriment, right? So mm-hmm. because actually that means that it's no longer, number one, it's no longer a parity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, women actually take up more time than men. And therefore, when you look at career progression, that may have some implications there. Mm-hmm. But it also has implications around, uh, you know, entrenched perceptions, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, so yeah, there can be certain things um, that perhaps we can take a playbook out of other um, countries that have perhaps progressed a little bit further along this dimension. What do you think would be some of those things? Well, you mentioned paternity leave, and that's a great one. So one of the things that's really interesting is that even when paternity leave is uh, instituted, mm-hmm. let's say either as uh, you know at a national level or even at a company level, what we find is that actually the take-up rate is really low mm-hmm. in Southeast Asia. So that is really about um, attitudes as well. And I think it's also – so sometimes the men actually want to – take the time out to spend with their children. And you really see the shift, particularly around the younger the younger parents. Mm. Younger fathers actually really do want to be involved in their children's lives. Um, but they sort of feel that maybe there's a stigma. So we need to destigmatize that, right? Mm. So it really starts with, I think, having strong role models uh, and also making sure that people feel that it's okay, right? So mm. um, when you start having your, your senior men uh, taking some time out to have their own work-life balance, that basically sends a signal to everyone, actually, this is a good thing. And I must take I must sort of tie this back to the notion of longer working lives. Mm. We're working a lot longer than we used to before. And while it used to be that you would work for a stretch and then you would retire for that stretch, uh, now you will probably work for a lot longer. Careers may be 50 or 60 years long. So you need to find a way to have a pace in your life, Mm -hmm. right? 
right? That is at the at, you know balanced essentially. Um, so so I, I think that this issue of work life balance is something that applies to both men and women for the long haul. So we need some role models, <laughs> we need some male role models and male champions to support this as well. Absolutely. I mean, the best way that leaders can lead is by example, right? Absolutely. All right. Well, unfortunately, we've come to the end of the interview. I feel like we could talk about many other topics for a long, long time. Uh, you know, but thank you so much, Suyan, for sharing your thoughts on all these uh, different varieties of topics and uh, essentially giving us an insight into, you know, your thoughts for the future of work. Thank you, Christine. It's been a pleasure. All right. This has been Raise Your Game. I'm Christine Wong. And if you've missed any of today's podcasts, you can download our app. That's available on the Apple App Store or Google Play. You can also head over to our website, bfm.my. This has been BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.